totally unknown uh, to church and unchurched alike. Uh, and, and the serious question we're asking is, what are the ways of Jesus so that we can walk with Christ, with Jesus together? And there's a, a fairly, I think, repeatable framework that we're going to go through in the series. And um, the framework is this, is that the first step of Jesus' ministry and also the first step of our lives with Christ is to embrace our identity while living within our authority. This is what we talked about at the retreat. I am going to recap it for those who weren't there. And then the next step was finding people of peace, community. And from that community, creating an extended family on mission and with intentionality within that extended family, making disciples who in turn will make disciples. That word disciple is the Greek methetes, which just means learner. We're learning the ways of Jesus in this series. We continue to learn the way of Christ as we walk with the Lord. Uh, very important and very uh, fairly missed within Christian circles is that we establish healthy, fruitful rhythms so that our life together can be sustainable. And then ultimately, we do live the cross-carrying life, which bears much fruit, although it can be fairly difficult. We're rooting this series in the book of Luke. Luke writes a fairly orderly account. Most of the Gospels are written thematically. Luke is sequential, and it, it gives a highlight to the hidden years of Jesus, which I think is very helpful, particularly for context for today. The hidden years being when he, after he was about essentially a couple weeks old through about 30 years old. There's a lot that's missed. The Gospels aren't written, as we know, historical narrative. They're written thematically, but Luke does write an orderly account. And so this week we're talking about, well, we're beginning the conversation of finding people of peace by reflecting on those who are not people of peace, or who we think should be people of peace but turn out not to be. Um, but before we do that, again, I want to I talk about the foundational framework just briefly of what we reviewed. Yes, in Catalina, embracing our identity and living in God's authority. Uh, before Jesus healed, before he did anything, he was baptized in the Judean uh, River, the, actually the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness. And from that baptism, he heard these words, you are God's child whom God loves and with God or with Jesus, he's well pleased. And these are the words that we hear in our own baptism. They undergird our identity. They're, they're the essential framework for, being a, for walking with Jesus. They are the framework, and they have very practical implications. If we are children of God, that means nothing else defines us, not what society says, not what our parents say, per se, uh, not what our job says. Nothing else defines us. Our sole identity is being God's child. And, and, and as we receive that identity, we begin to see others as those needing God's love, not others as enemy, others as bad, others as a nuisance, others as annoying. We primarily see people as needing God's love. And as a child, we maintain a growth mindset. We're growing. This series, we're not going to conquer the ways of Jesus. It's a, it's a lifelong rhythm, but it's good to be exposed to it. And then we live in an extended family who push us towards that identity lovingly. And then finally, we seek to hear the Father's voice. As a child, we have access to God's voice in a way that we did not prior. And that's what we talked about a lot in the retreat. We'll probably do another conversation about that in the future. Actually, in the series, we're going to do that. So that's great. Um, and then from that idea of hearing God's voice, that, that begins to help us understand the authority that we have, that our, our God is not only dad, but our God is also the king of the universe. 
Um, and we're being placed in a position where we have access to power. And we talked about a bit about power struggles, but our power is about self-giving love, never about domination. And the foundational way that we exercise our authority is essentially, it starts with hearing from God and helping others do the same, and it carries forward from there. And the ways that we can exercise that authority is we create space to get away. We don't jump right in the ministry. The first thing Jesus does is get away to discern uh, the framework of his calling, the framework of the series. Um, we understand that we're in a spiritual battle. Jesus was in a spiritual battle, but the devil is not Jesus' evil twin. He is the author of the universe, and so he puts the devil in its proper place, and by doing so, we're able to put not people in an evil place, but rather love them. And then he deduces the lies that we hear both inside our head and in the world. He verbally speaks God's truth. We are to do the same. And then lastly, he steps into kingdom efforts. After that season away, he steps into kingdom efforts. And that's where we find ourselves today, that Jesus had the spirit poured out of him in his baptism. He goes into wilderness to affirm his calling. And he returns to Galilee, but not before meeting a couple friends in his baptism. He meets five people uh, Philip, Nathan, Andrew, John, and Peter. And that'll be really important for next week. Whatever you've read, everybody, people watch The Chosen, it's really well done. The, the narrative, I would say, has a couple hiccups. And we'll talk about that more next week. But he makes some friendships there. He actually teaches in some synagogues along the way. He walks them to Capernaum. We see that in our passage today. And then he heads to his hometown of Nazareth, where he spent 28 years, years of his life, the hidden years of Christ. And um, he's beginning his ministry. And in doing so, he goes to his hometown. Why do you think he does that? Why does Jesus head uh, to his hometown? His ministry is inaugurated. There's a buzz in the air. Hopes are rising. He's starting to do these amazing acts that we see in the other gospels. And Jesus intentionally stops home. Why do you think Jesus returned to his hometown? I'm gonna call this time popcorn time. So feel free to just popcorn an answer, not a sermon. So a sentence. Why do you think Jesus goes home? Teach his disciples? Yes? Any other ideas? Certainly. He, this is his crew. He doesn't want them to be left out of it, right? I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I think before the rumors get out, like, they kind of just, they don't, so the rumors will get out, you kind of pull them. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm a believer in, like, multifaceted answers. Like, our, what we're sensing from the Lord. Yeah, he's going home. I'll, I'll add one more. He's, he's going home because... This is where people should have his back, you know, like this is his hometown, which is what we were saying, like a comfortable place, making disciples. It, this is a place that's safe, right? This should be a very safe place for you. And probably a place where like, if you've ever like started a movement or like try to begin a group, who do you go to first? I had to raise uh, support for about five years. Who do you think I went to first? I go to mom and dad and cousins and aunties and uncles. That's one of the things that you do. But I think it, it begs a follow-up question. What is it like for you to go to your hometown? What's that like or whatever that looks like? 
And, and may, you, who lives here? Who lives in their hometown? I'm just curious about that. I know Chris does, Brian, Grant, Laura. That's got to be an interesting dynamic. Uh, but yeah, what is it like for you to return to your hometown? Just take a minute and think about that while I take a sip of coffee. One of the, the greatest difficulties of returning home, even if it is your home, is dealing with expectations. So, somewhat of our own, like who, who, we're believe, who we believe we're supposed to be and or others' expectations. Uh, those who have seen, assume that we need to fit some role. And um, even for those um, who may be living in their hometown now, I could definitely speak for those who do not. It's like really difficult to not go back in time when you go back home, isn't it? It's like so difficult. My, my hometown, I'm from Dagsboro, Delaware, which is just four miles inland from Bethany Beach. I, I like to say Bethany, but it's technically Dagsboro. Dagsboro. It's a rural beach town. It's really dope. It's in Delaware. I've heard the Wayne's World thing a zillion times, if you're old enough to know what Wayne's World is. Um, and I personally had a life that was marked by the pressure to succeed. And, and one of the last moments that I had in my hometown, I actually lived in San Diego and returned home three months in just to visit, and I ended up having a drinking accident, not vehicular, a drinking accident where I, I was impaired for three months under the care of my mom and dad. And with that came some notable shame not in part by my parents, my own shame. There were some pretty rough comments from people in my community. Uh, yeah, but it's difficult to go back. I mean, it took, that was 20 years ago. 20, yeah, 20 years ago. And, and just through time and deep healing, specifically in the part of Jesus, I, I'm able to return home with way less insecurities in that first decade way less insecurities, and enjoy the Atlantic and the inland bays and riding bikes. As, but there was notable shame, particularly in that moment when I, came, when I was stuck home and incapacitated from my own mistake of drinking. So has it, my question is, as we consider ideas, has there ever been a time where you've been rejected or dejected or shamed? I mean, it kind of happens all the time. I think I can name like a few from the last couple hours. <laughs> Not, not from my family, maybe the last couple of days. Courtney's awesome. But rejected from your peeps, whether it's in your hometown or not. This is like we've kind of had like time where we popcorn. Now we had some time for the eternal processors. Now external processors. Let's share a moment in our life where we experienced maybe some rejection from someone or in, in our close circles. Okay, so take time to talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Jaggy. All right, take about 30 seconds. I feel good. Yeah, we're good. So I don't, I don't want to discount or dismiss anybody's experience. And if that dug some stuff up, I would say continue to process it. That's a bit of what we'll talk about later on today. Um, 
Yeah, I, I wish I had a softer pastoral landing. Um, but one of the aspects of, of, of life, and particularly an aspect of our faith, is that the acceptance of Christ, the acceptance of free, also comes with a lot of rejection. Um, that part of coming to faith and trust in the ways of Jesus is that there will be people in your life who will reject you. And we'll, we'll talk about what it means to respond to rejection and where God in, is in that. But I would just want to, I just sense from the Spirit, just like, if that's something that's like, feels like a ball and chain around your leg, I, I would love to continue to process that with you. We have other leaders too. Uh, but the truth is, yeah, the ways of Jesus, they just have a way of coming in conflict with the brokenness of our world. And, and Jesus had him, said himself that one family, because of following him, is going to end up being divided against one another. One will hold a baby, the other one will try to hold the baby. Just kidding. No. But it happens. There's even divisions within families. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and then the in-law. That's a big thing. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And that's just Jesus reflecting on what Micah said, the prophet, last book in the Old Testament. It's a sobering and difficult um, reality that we will experience rejection. Um, Jesus, or Paul, or rather John, he writes in his first epistle, like a very helpful statement. He says, we love because God first loved us. And then John elsewhere writes in his first gospel that Jesus says on the night he's betrayed, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Why am I providing these two verses right now? Well, it gives us a, a boatload of theology in two verses. What it tells us is that God never rejects his creation, and rejection is a man-made construct. Not women, but man. No, it's a human construct. It's a human construct. And I think people ask the question about final judgment and hell, and it's a great question. What's helpful for us to understanding, understanding that Rejection is a, a human construct. Is God does not coerce. Uh, true love is rooted in choice, reception, and response. And God allows people to live in their rejection of him. There's a lot of follow-up questions for sure, but that's ultimately the deal with God. And I, I know it can be confusing when you're reading the Old Testament or reading even some of Jesus' sayings because Jesus wrote the Old Testament. Um, that... Yeah, it seems like God is angry. Well, God does refute some actions. He does spurn some ideologies, but he's not about rejecting people. A God who loves risks that his love is not being received. That's what we believe. That's a foundational framework for us, so that a God who loves risks that his love is not being received, that it's being rejected. And this, this leads to a follow-up question uh, it's like, how did Jesus respond to rejection? And we're going to read about that. And then how do we respond to rejection? How do we respond to rejection? We're going to read about Jesus in his hometown right now. It's a long verse. We'll stand for the first part, and then you can have a seat because it's long. Okay? So if you're physically able, please stand out of respect for God's word. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 31. Verse 14 says this, 
Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. And he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. That's kind of what I synapsed like him after the wilderness. Now, he went to Nazareth, hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's from Isaiah 61 and 58. You may have a seat. I'm going to continue on. It's helpful to note that Jesus wasn't formerly a rabbi, but because of the buzz and because of what he'd been doing and teaching elsewhere, his hometown definitely invited him to speak and then to sit down in the Moses seat, which was reserved for rabbis. And he's speaking from Isaiah. This, this year of the Lord's favor is representative of the Old Testament uh, year of Jubilee, where all the oppressors set free. It's something that Israel's waiting for, this messianic kingdom. And you'll see how Jesus expounds upon it. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, this is his teaching moment, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, if Jesus stopped here, he would be the most popular guy in his ministry. I mean, they would have the greatest brunch afterwards. But then Jesus goes on to tell the entire truth of what this means, what this messianic kingdom, this, this year of jubilee means, this lasting year. Jesus said to them, surely you're gonna quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown that we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The next section reads this, that he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. Jesus goes home, and they try to murder him. And it's, it's I, I got to spend time on the, the hill that they believe it happened. It is a thin place. It's, it's just a beautiful valley where you can see the, um, the Jordan head south. It's amazing. And it, it just is like really reflective to think about what that meant for him. He's going to his hometown. That's the Greek oikos. That's your household. A household is less of a place and more of a people. Uh, you have a household, and it's not like our nuclear family. You know, I, I live with my four kids and my dog and my wife. 
It's, it's way bigger than that. It's extended families coming together. It's different servants coming together. It's, it's neighbors, and you live communally. In fact, the house is kind of set up. Homes are set up where there's rooms on the sides, and there's a center courtyard, and you eat together, and meals are shared together. And the function of your oikos is twofold. It's protection and provision. And from that is a lot of joy and community. And your identity was way less, way less individual. Your identity was way more communal. It's hard to wrap our minds around that idea of having a collective identity, but think about us in this church. Like we have, we're like, hey, we're, we're part of the church, Big C, but like we're Water's Edge people. What's up? You know, like that's our thing. And I think when you think about kind of the world's tendency in Western individualism to still couple themselves with these different social factions that lead to different social individuals, so, social divisions rather, let me slow down. All that points to, when I'm like, hey, I'm on the right, I'm on the left, hey, I'm for this and not for that, that, that points to a longing to belonging. It's like the original West Side story, that we long to belong. And here's our people where I know Jesus and his humanity. Sometimes we always put the divine Jesus on front stage. He was fully human, that Jesus and his humanity would have loved to know people would have his back. I'm not even sure he knew what was going to happen here. I believe he's fully God, but we dismiss his humanity too much. Think about it. His mom was there. Almost certainly his mother was there. This is the woman who, in the beginning and when he was 12 years old, pondered all these things that Jesus was doing and treasured them in their heart. I think I sat at that cliff just thinking about that. Like, I, yeah, just thinking about your mom. Um, she was almost certainly there. His brothers were there. He had uh, a few sisters and I think three or four brothers. I can't remember offhand. And these are like strong stonemason brothers. These are brothers who likely built their father's tomb with Jesus. And what are they saying? We could probably assume nothing. Nothing or very little. Um, in a shame culture, and I think most cultures, shame culture, but definitely collective culture and these warm climate cultures, not just, actually dismiss that term, warm climate, that's a, that's a heady term. But in collective communities, shame is a huge uh, aspect. It's a huge theme that comes. Like if you bring shame, if you bring shame at this home, you're bringing shame on the household. And they quieted themselves. They silenced themselves to the point where Jesus could have been pushed off a cliff. I don't know if they were really going to do it. We don't know how that went down. I think before I get into our message, it does make us consider the ways in which we observe rejection and perhaps say nothing or very little when we see it go down. And that, that's a sermon for another day, but I think it's worth reflecting on. The question we're asking today is, what are some of the ways that we respond to rejection? What are the ways, and I'm kind of like, these points won't be too long, but I've been just like riffing on this high five idea. I don't know if it'll go on, but I have like five points that I've deduced that I'm just going to flow through. How do, what are the way, some of the ways, I don't want to say this is the only ways, but what are some of the ways that we respond to our rejection? The first is, you and I got to understand that there will be people, especially in your hometown, that will put you in a box. It is the guttural instinct to characterize people. It just is. It's our instincts 
to see people through their quirks or their mistakes and our weaknesses. And the reason that we do it is fairly multifaceted. But it's a thing, you know, like you hear it, like that, that guy is so paternalistic. That gal is such a Karen. Is that the right term, Karen? Or a Megan, like a Karen or Megan? Yeah, that's like a term. That kid is so rude and has no manners. And again, we do it for so many reasons. We do it here in the church. And I'm going to give you two fairly safe examples. And I did not get permission for this. But I kind of poke at myself a little bit. I'm going to poke at somebody else that I love, Gregory. (laughs) And Grant. And Grant. In the leadership team, Gregory can be looked at somebody who's highly directive and brings the truth bombs a lot. Kind of like, um, you know, like, can be... Just the guy who's like, oh boy, here, Greg's going to say this, and like, he's coming with the truth, and you know, like, you're worried if there's not going to be grace there, right? Like, that's a thing. Grant, on the other hand, can be this guy who's like positive about everything. Everything's great. What do we need to worry about? And it feels a bit bohemian. And I say that because a lot of people don't see the tender, loving care of Greg. He's, he's a great pastor. You're a great pastor. You are. You are so tender, dude. And Grant, he has high belief. When it comes time to speak, he will be the cog in the wheel. But he has a lot of grace too. But we characterize people. I feel like that's a safe analogy. Um, I'm not gonna do any more. Yeah, it's so tempting to put people in a box. It's, maybe this is that passage where you, was the original line of, um, what is that line about familiarity? It breeds contempt. Maybe this is that original context, that familiarity breeds contempt. They, 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 they take offense at Jesus in part because it's the messenger. This is, the, um, this is not a cuss word in this context. This is a bastard child, according to them. Like, this is a child who brought shame on this family. When he goes to the inn, that's most likely the farm home of his household where people shouldn't be staying. Sometimes we think it's like no room at the end and he goes in some rain. No, that's where, that's like probably the Oikos's home that's reserved for animals. They're like, we don't have room for you. There's a lot of shame on that. And they're, they're seeing this like, yep, we knew it. This guy um, isn't who we thought he was. Or actually, this guy is exactly who we thought it is. This is a moment that confirms the shame that works in their categories of... Re, of, of um, that they've already reserved for Jesus. He's embarrassed Joseph's family again. But it's not just the messenger, it's the message. So what are some ways we respond to our rejection? We, we, yeah, we understand people will put us in a box. We tend to do it with others. And then we need to, as Jesus says, mirror any rejection that we receive with God's acceptance. That when we are rejected, we always mirror. I'm not saying I always do it, but we need to mirror God's acceptance to those who reject us. The acceptance of A-L-L all. This messianic jubilee is God's new salvation for all, and that includes the oppressed and the oppressors. And history of Israel has been really hard. Exile over occupation time and time again from Assyria up north, to Babylon, uh, to the Persians, to the Greeks, and now Romans. And it is nuts. It's nuts hearing that God has grace for all. I think we can distance ourselves from that, but we think of our categories of like North Korea, you know, or 
how we feel about the Ukraine-Russian conflict, that God, God wants to love each and every person there. But it's not just the nations. It's, it's, our, it's our neighbor or our, our nincompoop sibling. It's the thing. God loves loving that person. It does. And, and we're going to experience many major and minor rejections. We are. We certainly are. And whoever he, she, they are, God wants to bless those people. God wants to bless them. Not excuse actions, but offer grace and mercy and ultimately love. And what's beautiful about this passage is it foreshadows something we'll talk about in terms of calibrating what Jesus does, calibrating invitation with challenge. That's a, we'll dog ear that for another sermon. But here's a small challenge today. Whenever you're being dismissed, demoted, rejected, etc., calmly communicate God's unfailing love for that person and mean it. It's hard to mean it. Like sit in it and then communicate that to that person. Because that, what that does is it, it stimulates dignity. And like an ointment, it can sting at first, but ultimately it brings healing because it promotes shared dignity. It seems basic. It is basic. It, it's not harder than that. Even if that person doesn't love God, communicate God's unfailing love for them in the midst of the rejection. And not like, oh, God loves you, so up yours, not that. It's like, it's like God loves you, dude. I love you. So, uh, and that leads somewhat to the next point. What are some ways that we respond to our rejection? You know, we understand we get put in a box. We mirror rejection with acceptance. And then uh, we continue to stand in our identity. This is certainly, certainly huge. This is why it's a foundational framework. We are God's child whom God loves, and with us God is well-pleased. One more time. We are God's who God loves, and with us God is Preach it. There's a really interesting scripture that makes a lot of people who've read the Bible for a little bit just really speculate. Like, how did this go down? Uh, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, which is a ways away. It's kind of rural to get to that, that hill in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, I... I've heard this preached a couple times, and I'm not saying I've got the right way, but I've heard like of the, the meathead Jesus moments where he kind of flexes, you know what I mean, and just is like, stares him down. I've heard of, I've heard of uh, the ghost Jesus moment where he phases through the crowd. I've heard of that opinion, and I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm of neither of those opinions because the more and more I, I read about Jesus, the more and more I, I see... Uh, I, I like to see his humanity. And my, my takeaway from that very moment is that he's not walking a tightrope, but he's walking a fine line between two things. Self-deprecation over here and self-aggrandizement over here. And he doesn't fall to one side or the other, but he walks strong knowing whose he is and who he is. 
And when you see somebody who's grounded in their identity, it is hard to put to words what that looks like. But I know his people saw what that looked like. He spent 40 days in the wilderness being grounded in this truth. And he walked through that crowd with that self-dignity. That's how he walked through. That is my belief, that when someone's grounded in their identity, they know who they are, loved by God, God's child, well-pleased despite our actions or inactions, there's just a strength of character that is unpreachable. I do suspect it was a sobering moment for the crowd. What are some of the ways that we respond to our rejection? Caricatures, mirror, acceptance, stand grounded and walk grounded in our identity, and we also need to befriend grief. We have to befriend grief. This is one of the ways that we walk with Jesus. It says in verse 31, that's why I included it, that he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee. So this is a 20-mile walk, a day's walk, where he's processing all this. And who is he walking with? He's walking with someone that we tend not to embrace. It's this bony, smelly sibling of ours named Grief whose embraces are always awkward, who is cumbersomely silent at times and then spurts out other things at times, but is longing to hold our hands as we walk. That when we walk with Jesus, it can be a lonely, difficult road. It, it certainly can be. And, and yes, we're walking with Jesus, but many times we need to walk with our sibling grief. It's just a reality. There's a dangerous quote, in my opinion, that rings true, and it said that no one is fully accepted until they are utterly rejected. I just sense that's true for the life that we have with Jesus, that we're not really ever, we don't understand. We're obviously fully accepted, I believe that, theologically, but we, we don't grasp the acceptance of God until we are rejected by others. The psalmist says, and Bob Marley sings, that the, the stone that the builders refuse will always be the head cornerstone. Remember that? Sublime sang it as well? No. It's from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders refuse shall always become the head cornerstone. I'm a builder, baby. This is not, this is a going off on. Here you are, stone. Okay. But it's Psalm 118. I can't help but think of that, but it's, it provides the theology of rejection. That with rejection also comes a cumbersome walk with grief. And when we experience rejection, it's an opportunity to die with Jesus, uh, in part, to die with Jesus and, and take residence up in a tomb, which comes with lifelessness, um, a timetable that we can't even control at all, as we wait for a day to, to, for God to bring new life in that area of our life which God wants to do, for, for God to even potentially bring a resurrection life for us and the people who rejected us. Isn't that awesome? 
but it's also an invitation to process our pain in whatever timing that you and I need. What are some of the ways that we respond to our rejection? You get the recap. The last one was befriending grief. And now the last, last one is to move forward with God while never turning your back on anyone. This is described in the Gospels. That's why I'm referencing Mark 3 and John 19 with Jesus' mother at the tomb. That we'll talk about in a moment, but well, I'll just say that there's a, this is a very uh, amazing moment, although it's super painful, uh, that compounds with other amazing moments that brings increasing clarity for Jesus' hometown. Maybe not everyone, but particularly his mother and brothers and sisters. But do you think Jesus knew this is how it was going to go down? Do you think he had hope? Remember, Jesus, again, I can't say this enough, he's fully human. Isaiah says that he was acquainted with sorrow. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Uh, The author of Hebrews says that he was um, tempted like us in every way, and yet without mistake, without sin. So whatever pain we would experience that moment, Jesus experienced it. But what made him fully human is whatever hope he could have had, he had. And he, he sees these moments with all its pain as also hopeful moments that would bring eventual clarity, hopefully, to those who rejected him. And we see that clarity. We see his brother Jude. So, oh, man. I'm not like a complete crier, by the way. I'm all right. But I don't know what's going on. We see that clarity. It's okay to cry. Tears of freedom. Yeah. With his brother Jude, who, who writes his uh, letter about persevering in the midst of persecution. And we see the clarity in James, who becomes uh, the father of the late church. Wow. Uh, yeah, words can hurt sometimes. They can. And we see faithfulness to Jesus. We see it in his mother's faithfulness when she walks with him to the cross and finds her place in God's extended family and almost certainly shepherds those who have fallen short time to time. It's an amazing reality I guess I'm priming myself for the next step. <laughs> May we never turn our backs on everyone. It's not in God's nature. It's not in ours. It's just not. That's not who God is. And so I'm going um, to invite my boy and my brother, Pastor Greg, up, that tender, sweet pastor friend of mine. He's going to play a, 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 a few licks, as they say. And we're going to pray a prompt. We're going to pray through this prompt just as he plays. It's going to be on the screen. And this prompt is simply this. I am not what others, others say I am, particularly those who reject me. That's not who I am. I'm God's kid. We're also going to couple that prompt with this prompt. It's definitely sit in the first one first. It'll prepare you for the second one. That whoever they are, he, she, they, they are not the enemy or whatever level you've given them. He or she are loved by God and welcome into Jesus' extended family. 
I want you to look over those words and let them wash over you. I'll do the same thing. So we're going to play a couple lyrics, and then we're going to take communion together because the table has many seats, and it's open to all. It is his, and it's because of the cross of Christ, his blood shed for us, his forgiveness, his loving life that's unfailing, that paved the way for us to, to receive that identity, to hear the Father's voice, to come home, sit down, rest at my table. You are always welcome, and so are they.